Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Martin Chemnitz in Caridia, and we're going to continue talking about faith today. It's a place in the doctrine of justification, and of course what flows forth from justifying faith, sanctification. So we'll be touching on both of those concepts as we go along today. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, if you recall, last week we talked about the exclusive particles. Do you remember this? And if not... One place you could turn is to question 161, where we see the answer, and and just very briefly. For in this article, Scripture from time to time uses, repeats, and emphasizes exclusive particles, which are, and then some examples are given, freely by grace. See how it's a particle of speech that excludes good works or merit, or other similar concepts. That's why they're called exclusive particles. So, freely by grace, according to his grace and mercy. Again, grace, mercy as concepts, especially grace defined even in St. Paul, defined in the scriptures as being without works. Then, freely by free gift, Again, if there's any merit or earning, that destroys the notion of free or the notion of gift. So these are particles that exclude works. Continuing on, not of ourselves, not by works, without the law. And that's important for the distinction between law and gospel, is we're justified apart from the law or without the law and thus also without works. And Chemnitz just goes on to say, all these exclusive particles are comprehended in that one proposition, we are justified by faith alone. Okay, so just wanted to give you that refresher so that you're not lost when we talk about exclusive particles yet again today. The new material takes us down to the bottom of page 78 with question 163. But if faith alone justifies... Will then such faith, as is without repentance, without good intent, and without subsequent works, justify? Answer, not at all. For where there is no repentance, but the intent remains to continue in sins, there true faith cannot exist. And faith that does not work by love but remains without good fruits, is not true, but feigned and dead faith. And that is the kind of, as you can see in the scriptures there cited after the fact, particularly James 2.26, that is the kind of faith, in quotes, that James has put in his targets. It's a notional faith, a 
faith that knows the truth, assents to the truth, but there's no living faith that entrusts itself unto Christ. And so even the demons have this kind of notional faith. They know it, they assent to it, but there's no kind of entrusting themselves unto God, unto Christ. So that kind of faith is no faith at all. And here you can see someone like Chemnitz sound very much like James. All right, question 164. What then do the exclusive particles exclude? And this may seem like a redundancy, but it's not. Answer. They exclude chiefly three things from the matter of justification. First, neither repentance, nor good intent, nor renewal, nor virtues, nor good works are a merit or efficient cause of our justification or reconciliation. But the merit is to be ascribed alone to Christ and the cause alone to the free grace or mercy of God for the sake of Christ, the mediator. All right, so then excluded from justification is anything in us before, during, or after conversion. That's shorthand. So it's never dependent upon us. Second, no good works whatever, but only faith is the means and instrument ordained by God himself by which we apprehend, receive, and apply to ourselves the merit of Christ and the grace of God, promised through and for the sake of Christ and offered in the word and the sacraments. So again, all good works are excluded. Any good works prior to conversion, you could, you could understand how if somebody's trying to wiggle out off of this and wiggle around this, then they might try to say, well, maybe God justifies by grace or faith apart from works, but he only does so for those who have shown themselves to be worthy by their works ahead of God's action. No, no works before, during, or after can be part of justification. Again, on account of those scriptures that we just read, the exclusive particles found in God's own divine word. Um, likewise, excluded is this kind of nonsensical idea. Um, you might know it under the heading of intuitive fide, in view of faith. Um, but here could be also excluded any in view of works, right? That God, before the foundation of the world, looked forward into time and saw your faithfulness and thus chose to give you faith. <laughs> or saw your good works and thus chose to justify you by faith apart from works. And all this nonsense, which is not only circular, but even more telling, is found where in the scriptures? Nowhere. All right, so excluded, gone. Third, and here is maybe the toughest for us to wrap our minds around. I mean, this is, this is where I think Luther talks about you know, whoever can rightly apply law and gospel deserves an instantaneous doctorate in theology because it's the application that's so challenging. And this third point touches on this difficulty. So, third, renewal, sanctification, virtues, and good works are not 
our justification and reconciliation or form a part of it. But they consist completely in the free imputation of the righteousness of Christ and in the remission of sins for Christ's sake, whom we apprehend alone by faith. Romans 4, verses 5 through 7. For our good works do not enter the circle, as Luther says, or article or act of justification. But there, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, remission of sins alone, rule. And thus, though true faith is never without good works, yet it justifies alone without works. Likewise, though making alive or renewal is always with justification, yet they are not to be mixed or mingled with each other. That bears repeating. This is a technical point, but an all-important point and a scriptural point. They are not to be mixed together or mingled with each other. For justification is one thing and renewal another. Or in our common mode of speaking, justification is one thing, sanctification is another. So, wherever there is justification, sanctification flows forth from it. But one cannot and must not argue backward and say, if I'm sanctified, that means I'm justified. Because that moves, it's very subtle, but it moves the object of faith away from Christ and puts it on you. That's what's at stake, ultimately. Continuing with Chemnitz, and though they cannot be separated according to difference in time... That's what I mean when I said in previous weeks that you're given the gift of faith. But faith has these two aspects, a passive and an active. There's justifying faith that simply receives the merits of Christ. There's sanctifying faith that is renewed by the Holy Spirit and does good works. These two things are one faith. They can't be two faiths. They're one faith given at one time, but they must always be distinguished, like two sides of a coin. And if you ever mess up and you say, okay, well, I'm not going to take these two sides of the coin. I'm going to make it so that they're no longer sides. Well, you've just mangled up the whole coin, and it's no longer a coin, you see. So you have to keep this one organic reality that there's justifying faith, and renewal, or new birth in the Holy Spirit, these two things always happen at once, and yet we must keep them distinct. Otherwise, the object of faith is going to move from Christ, from the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, to you and some contingency, some level of dependence upon your own renewal or sanctification or good works. That has to be avoided. Otherwise, you're just going to slip right back into the material thing. The the efficient cause is you. 
So once more, Chemnitz, and though they cannot be separated according to difference in time, yet in the order of significance or nature, justification precedes and renewal follows, which latter does not come in the nature of justification, but is its fruit or consequence. So there are several different scriptures that teach this way directly, but that love flows forth from faith. Wherever there is faith, there is love. But those two things are quite distinct. There's faith and there's love, two distinct things, even though they form an organic whole, wherever faith is, there love is. All right, let's pause there. Let's see if everything here is clear. There's a hand up here, and while you're bringing the microphone up, Say this is, as you can tell, very important because one of Satan's chief means of attacking Christians is to attack your sanctification and thereby try to demonstrate that if you lack sanctification, you lack justification. He's always trying to approach theology from this backward, cart-before-the-horse kind of method. And it may seem deceptively simple, but he will gladly have you fall into either despair, which is the obvious temptation in this line, but also into a kind of self-righteousness where you say, no, I do have it. I am pulling it off. He has subtly moved the object of your faith away from Christ to your own sanctification. Please. My problem is in the Just because it's active language? Yeah. Yeah, just remember, I mean, even believe is active language. I'm thinking that too. Yeah. But. So we have to. We have why, to why doesn't it say, and is applied Well, he could say that, and there may be some translational stuff going on here. But I don't think we should turn away from active language. So there's all kinds of ways the scriptures speak. So a similar argument, I suppose, could be made that instead of saying, take and eat, why doesn't Jesus take the bread that is his body, go over to his disciple, pull their beard down, put it in, and then masticate the bread for them, and then plug their nose until they involuntarily swallow, right? There's a point of, at which it becomes absurd. It's obviously a gift, and even the active language of take and eat Again, we we can kind of revisit different analogies for how absurd that is, that we would take credit and say, well, Lord, you're welcome. My sins are now forgiven because I took, I ate, I swallowed. So, you know, just put the check in the mail. (laughs) So the, the gospel is filled with all kinds of active language. Um, Get up, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Um, 
clothe yourself in Christ Jesus. Believe, eat, drink, um, apprehend, receive, take. All of these things are active, but understood in the gospel sense. There's nothing to fear. They're all, properly speaking, gift. And they are, even linguistically, from a certain perspective, already um, gift because he's saying, do these things. It's like somebody handing you a key, right? He wouldn't hand you a key unless you were invited in. And again, you don't, take, you don't pick up the key and say, okay, well, now I've gotten myself into this place. Uh, I'm no longer a guest. So if you go to an Airbnb and, I don't know, do they give you the code? Is that right? You don't say, well, because I gained access via the code, I now own this house and I'm not a guest. No, the code was given to you. You are a guest and you remain a guest even though you've been given the code or the key, even though you've been given these things like take, eat, take, drink, be baptized, believe, trust, apprehend, apply. And I think where where this is so helpful is the application to yourself that language, active as it may be, is actually just true to experience. Because as Christians, in the spiritual fight against the doubts of our own flesh and uh, the temptations to doubt and fall away presented to us by the world and by all kinds of individual, unique, pernicious spiritual beings who would lead us astray, we're constantly applying to ourselves the merits of Christ. And even in, even in maybe small things that end up being big, like, well, why would I pray? God's not going to hear me. I'm a dirty, filthy sinner, or um, I've been so far away from him, he wouldn't hear me. We should immediately apply to ourselves the merit of Christ. Say, since when has he ever ever heard you on the basis of your own nearness or your own spiritual fitness. He has always and ever heard you on the basis of his own goodness, his own word and invitation to prayer, his own command that you pray, and of course, the righteous intercession of his son, your great high priest. Those are the reasons. So what have you just done? That's a self-application of the principles of justification. It's a self-application of the exclusive particles. Even if you can't articulate it as such, that's still what's going on. Make some, make some sense? Yeah, and I, I put in my mind uh, going back to the confirmation you know, it's like uh, I believe that I cannot have my own reason or strength to be in the Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. And I had a professor who would say, don't over-apply a rule of grammar. He called it bending over backwards rule. Oh, so mm, it's, mm. you know, don't apply in the proper sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's a wise thing for preachers to pay attention to and to employ the passive language frequently because it communicates an important truth. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't do it with such scrutiny that we end up judging the Holy Spirit. Who, uses, who is not ashamed to use active language all throughout the scriptures, even in the context of justification. 
even while saying that our action is excluded from justification. Yes, please. Um, you hit it right. I, would, I don't even know if it's important that I say this. All learning is built on experience. So these action words are the experience. When you said experience, yep, that's it. That's it exactly. We only make our knowledge when we apply it to us. That is like the gift all teachers look for start seeing people apply things that they've learned in the classroom. So, okay, now it's there. That knowledge is owned by that person. I mean, even the covenants that he gave us, baptism, Lord's Supper, it's active. It's not just this passive, you know, I mean, yes, something is happening that we're not doing, but we're, we're, we're taking time to walk up to the altar to lay our children baptized, I have no language to put to that, so I can't speak of it anymore, mm-hmm. or ever could, you know, I had no language for it, but I looked at all my children, I could never get through a baptism without crying, mm-hmm. so moving, of my children, mm-hmm. of children. Mm-hmm. myself, maybe I cried too, I don't know. <laughs> so the real focal point, thank you for that, and the real focal point, which will, I think, dovetail with your comments is that we cannot let sanctification slip into the doctrine of justification. That's the devil's temptation. Now, there's actually two errors here. They're both equally as great. They'll both equally lead to shipwreck. And we just tend to be more familiar. If you bring sanctification, if you bring conditionals and contingency into justification, you're destroying the notion of grace. You're destroying the notion of a free gift, etc. But another thing can happen that we're less familiar with, and that's if you drag justification and those principles into sanctification, you'll end up destroying any sense of renewal or any sense of progress or any sense of gain in maturity in one's spiritual life. And you'll end up using the gospel to destroy the work of the Holy Spirit obviously, in one's own heart and mind, leading to an error. And so both of these represent deformities that Satan is more than happy to use. Drag drag sanctification into justification and make your salvation contingent. Drag justification into sanctification, obliterating sanctification, which ultimately the end goal of that is just to obliterate your faith too. Because through that move, he's going to ultimately get you to wander away from Christ and a truly repentant relationship to Christ. So in that, in that context, then, forgiveness gets replaced with acceptance. That's one of the tells. Um, good morning. Um, morning. Earlier you said, uh, without repentance, true faith cannot exist. And so... I have a lot of questions on on repentance. Uh, is, am I to take that repentance is also a gift from God? That it's apart from my own efforts. Um, in other words, it does it. Does it mean that I feel sorry for my sin? Is that a uh, biblically? I think you know. In Acts two, it says that they were pierced to the heart, and uh, Luther was terrorized with his sin. I personally haven't experienced that 
that those uh, attributes of, of my nature. So I'm, I'm just wondering, if, is repentance a measure of my faith? And uh, how does that fit into uh, serial sinning, where you have a continual sin nature, which, let's say, it's anger, hypothetically. I think I've asked a lot of things there, but... If <laughs> You could just comment on repentance and how it fits into this uh, uh, God's uh, plan for us. Sure. It might help to just get outside of the immediate context. And if you look at the scriptures, if you look at the way the, the Lutheran confessions speak, and obviously the Lutheran confessions are citing the scriptures on the church fathers. I think what you can I think what you can see is that the word repentance is used in different ways. So it would help to clarify that even if only in your own mind and then that might help sharpen the question. Repentance is in its widest sense simply conversion. That consists from God's angle of doing law and gospel and it consists of our angle of repentance and faith. So this is where repentance is synonymous. You can find this in, this, in various scriptures, where even where Christ uses it this way or others use it this way, that to repent is to convert to Christ. Okay? Now, in a more narrow sense, so you saw how that definition of repentance that is, is synonymous with conversion and includes both law and gospel. In a more narrow sense, Repentance proper is an effect of the law alone. So repentance would here be described as contrition or sorrow, sometimes fear or terror. And your mileage may vary in your experience of those effects. So I wouldn't be overly concerned if you, know, you don't have this moment in your life or if it isn't a frequent occurrence in your life that you literally are laying down on your living room floor, shaking in fear and can't get up and do anything for the next 24 hours. That's not a prerequisite or a condition of genuine repentance. It may occur, (laughs) or it may not, but generally speaking, contrition, whatever form it takes, sorrow, whatever form it takes, terror, fear, etc. These are common words that are common to the Christian experience of that repentance that is affected by the law of God. That's a, now we're using repentance in a narrower sense, aren't we? There's a narrower sense still, because that, that repentance can be affected, again, properly and technically speaking, that repentance, the contrition or terror over sins, can affect believers and unbelievers. You can be terrified of your sins and without faith in Christ. Maybe you have known people like that, although in our time and place, it's less likely because we're all convinced that we're great people and we deserve heaven. But you can still uh, find people who despair and say, I believe that there's a God, I believe that there's a hell, and I'm going there because I've sinned too great for any Savior. Here is someone who is experiencing repentance, that is, sorrow, contrition, terror over their sins, but is without faith. That's what I mean by, it's still, it's, even though it's not as broad or as wide as conversion, 
It's narrower, it's limited proper to, the, proper to the work of the law and the response of the law. It still is such that it applies to all people. Narrower still would be repentance as a fruit of faith in the life of Christians. And the formula of concord, Article 2, we're about to get into the section in our readings earlier on Thursday mornings. We're about to get into this very section. We'll talk about repentance as, in this way, in this narrow sense, as being something only a Christian can do and as a fruit and work of the Spirit. So a man can, to use a biblical phrase, examine himself. You can hold up the Ten Commandments and examine yourself. You can examine yourself according to your station in life, as the small catechism says. This is an, this is an active thing where you could do similar self-scrutiny during Lent right? um, or in individual confession absolution before a pastor so that he can absolve you directly of those sins. That is an activity that is given to us by virtue of the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's even more narrow still. Okay? So you can see then that the word repentance is used in all these different ways. If we're going to zoom out of any specificity and just talk about repentance quite generally, then we're just going to talk about it as a condition by which we know that we are sinners. We know that we are sick, not well. And where you can see this flowing from the scriptures is Christ will say, I came not for the well, but for the sick. Does he mean that there's a segment of the human population that is in fact well and he did not come for them? No, of course not. The tongue-in-cheek is that the Pharisees think themselves well, but they are sick. Those who think themselves well will need nothing from the one who heals the sick. If you're well, do you just go to the doctor and say, hey, just, uh, you know, I'm going to check in? No. I mean, even your, even, your, uh, you know, even your physical exams are predicated upon the fact that something could be falling apart and you want to make sure it isn't. Nobody goes to the doctor unless they have some need from the doctor. And that's, that's a very good analogy for thinking about repentance, the way that Chemnitz is using it in question 163, where he says, for where there is no repentance, there is no true faith, or true faith cannot exist. Okay? If you have, in this sense, lost sight of the fact that you're sick, you're no longer going to seek out the doctor, the physician and healer of our souls. So here, in in the general way that Chemnitz is using it, it would simply be acknowledging that you are sick and in need of the Savior. If you really wanted to categorize that, it would fall in that second category, not conversion, properly speaking, though it's certainly going to have some overlap, but in that second category of contrition or sorrow, recognition that you are a sinner, Condemned by the law of God. Now, there's nothing further there. It doesn't say you need to turn around. You need to, you know. And and again, this is kind of the, just as with all theology, there's this kind of razor's edge. Because the, or this narrow path, to be more biblical about it, right? 
The devil would love for the gospel to get into our flesh, where it just says, hey, habitual, repeating, recurrent sins don't matter. The grace of God just covers that, so do as you will, and don't even think twice about it. That will progress to the point at which you're completely, you've completely self-justified, and ultimately you won't feel bad, and ultimately you won't be repentant, and ultimately you'll say, I don't need to be saved from that. And in fact, that's an indicator then that one is in a state of impenitence, hardened in their sin, to where they don't acknowledge it as sin and, and or if someone calls them out on it, they just go, hey, mind your own business. That's a hardened heart in a state of impenitence. Now, that's one side, but the other side is that, is, and think about this, reductio ad absurdum is our friend here. Reducing things to the absurd. Because the devil will try to get you to be like, okay, you can't be without any habitual sins or any recurring sins. If you have them, you're not a Christian. Okay, so precisely how far do I, how, how long do I need to be free of these things? <laughs> what kind of track record do you need to have okay, in order to be saved? And just asking these kinds of very simple reductionistic questions are enough to lift the veil on the devil's machinations. That he's really trying to, ultimately, if you take that logic of you have to be free from everything, eventually that leads to, if you're not sinless, you can't be a true Christian. So those are the two errors if we zoom all the way out, we can see the same old pattern of leading into um, a kind of proud impenitence or a kind of despairing impenitence, which ultimately turns away from God and just becomes self-pitying and self-medicating, etc. So those are the two ditches we want to avoid while we're going down the narrow path. So um, habitual sins, of course, um, at least in the preacher's mind, always have these nice, tidy categories and tend to be other people's. But in real life, the habitual sins are uh, a lot more challenging to parse out, and especially because so many of them are socially approved and we don't acknowledge them. We acknowledge those that are not socially approved, but have a hard time seeing those that are. They're no less deadly sins. They're no less objectively damaging, but we simply don't see them as such. So again, I don't mean to be deconstructionistic here, but in my pastoral task, I've really, generally speaking, have yet to see a single person who doesn't suffer from some form of habitual recurring sin. Now, is one letting that manifest in behaviors that reign over one's life? That's a kind of diagnostic question that can be very helpful. Or is one still opposed to those sins, even when they manifest? Is one still opposed to those sins in such a way that he says, I agree with the law that it is good? Because there's a good biblical letter of Romans diagnostic. Do you agree with the law that it is good? Do you condemn this behavior, this pattern of behaviors? Do you wish to be free from it? Okay. 
You might even ask a diagnostic question, what are you doing to be free from it? So I, I would look at, um, if, it's, if it's like, so I'm going to be a little bit abusive here. I'll pick the low-hanging fruit. If your problem is drinking too much, are you regularly frequenting the bars? Are you keeping a full cabinet of alcohol at ready disposal? Or are you acknowledging there's a problem and trying to change your life and the availability to do those things? But the same thing, I'm picking on an easy one, on a low-hanging fruit and on a socially acceptable one. I mean, the same thing could be true for eating. You've got, you've got an unhealthy relationship with food, a sinful relationship with food. You're using food to medicate. All right, what foods and what does that look like? And have you thought, have you thought about it? Have you become conscious of it? Are you, what steps are you taking to extricate yourself from the problem? Now, all of those can be helpful diagnostic questions. But when you start to get down to the real root and nub of the issue... Do you acknowledge and confess that this is sinful and disordered? Do you wish to be forgiven? Do you wish to be free from this? Those are the core diagnostic questions. And those determine if one is in a state of penitence or not. And again, I think that we sometimes make this overly subtle And I think it should just be straightforward and plain. And in many cases, it is. In many cases, it is. A person has just given themselves over to something or given themselves over to some circumstance in their life that's very concrete. You know, a husband and a wife aren't divorced, but, the, but one of the two starts dating another. I mean, this is a manifest impenitence. Stop that. Right? Um, and you can, and you should. So there is also you know, distinctions to be made in terms of the externality and the manifest nature of sins over and against the internality of, of sins. So I know that's a lot of words and a lot of distinctions, but I don't know how else you describe pastoral care in any way, shape, or form and with uh, precision or conciseness, at least efficiency. That's really what I mean. So that's what I've attempted to do. Please. Pastor, that was some great stuff to meditate on. Um, and just to follow up to Barry's question, um, is it, can you talk about, is it possible that a person can be, um, that there's no emotion involved? In other words, we don't have a, an emotion. I recognize something's not right or sinful, and I want to change, but I don't have any terror over it. I don't have any, there's no emotion, just a recognition of it and want to change. Maybe there's a little bit of emotion in that, but mm-hmm. I've experienced things in my life where I had a recognition that something needs to change, but there's no emotion, no terror, no, uh, and I found that, that perhaps maybe the devil uses that to say, you're not truly repentant, right? Mm-hmm. You're not sorry. You're not, you don't have a terror, so you're not, it's not real. Yeah. Um, can you kind of comment on that? Just parsing out repentance and whether there's really emotion involved always or sometimes there's not? Yeah, I think, I mean, you bring up a great point and you stated it so well. There just, there are, 
there are these games being played with faith and these games being played with repentance. And these are the devil's chief temptations toward apostasy, sort of like deeply writ within a man's soul or a woman's soul, obviously. So it is true that you have to, you need to, it's absolutely necessary to retain a concept like true faith. Because as we started earlier, we examined a faith that is not true faith, a faith that is notional, a faith where there's assent, a faith that is the faith of demons. Contrast that with a true faith that entrusts itself. Similarly, there's a true repentance versus a false repentance. A false repentance is the kind of repentance of like, oh, I got caught, I'm sorry, can't wait to do it again, hope I don't get caught again. That's a false repentance and a true repentance. It is essential that we retain these concepts because they're biblical concepts and because they guard one flank. But as is always the case, no sooner than we guard one flank, Satan's going to attack the other and he's going to say, okay, but is it really, really, actually true faith? Is it 100% genuine repentance? And then he's going to try to pierce holes into that. And his basic mode here is a sleight of hand where he tries to get you to have your faith and repentance be synonymous with the keeping of the first commandment. I mean, that's when the gig's up. (laughs) Okay. So I have to fear, love, and trust in God in a perfect way. Otherwise, I don't actually have faith, right? True faith. So once you just realize the patterns, and again, this is where pastoral care can be very helpful because a pastor's outside of you. He's trained by God and by the scriptures to see these things and know these things. He can be very helpful in, you know, shining light on what's going on. So with that being the case, you, we need to definitely keep the concepts of true faith and true repentance and realize there's artificial things that Satan would love to lead you into. So that you're one of those on the last day saying, hey, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And he says, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. But on the other hand, we're not going to get ourselves wound up in this, okay, so true faith and true repentance have all these conditionals of my own sanctification wrapped in, baked in. And that's precisely the point to which Chemnitz is speaking. We have to keep those things cut out, otherwise the devil will abuse them and make our salvation, make the genuineness of our faith or the genuineness of our repentance contingent upon something within us. Remove that. Walk right down that narrow path between the two ditches, always, whatever those two ditches may happen to be. Does that help somewhat? Thank you for your your great insights and your, your great question. All right, anything else we want to talk about on this point? So as you can tell, this is all, um, you know, applying to oneself and apprehending for oneself uh, these, these things of God. That takes us down to question 165, a shorter question with a shorter answer. Can the article of justification be rightly and aptly taught apart from the exclusive particles? What do you think? I think no. As often as Paul teaches the fundamentals of this article and defends against adversaries, he always sets forth the antitheses by exclusive particles and thus shows that the purity of the article of justification cannot be preserved if the exclusive particles are neglected or opposed. 
Question 166 ties right in. For what reasons is it necessary to retain the exclusive particles? One, that due and proper honor be attributed to Christ and to the grace of God. An often overlooked point, maybe even the Reformed do a slightly better job of this than anyone else, but the idea of whatever you attribute to yourself in regard to salvation, you immediately steal from Christ. You immediately steal from God. It's a zero sum. Any credit that you would take is credit taken away from him. All right? Two, that conscience might have sure and firm comfort. If there's any contingency, any uh, conditionality placed into the article of justification, your conscience will never be certain. Because it's based on some unknown. Did you do it right? Is it genuine? Does God accept it? Is it not hypocritical? Anything, any condition that's based upon you is subject to doubt. I have it now, but will it change tomorrow? Will it change in five minutes? Was it genuine then? Is it genuine now? Will it be genuine in the future? On and on, endless questions. The conscience can never find rest unless it's all and 100% dependent upon God. That's where salvation isn't up to you, and that's good news. You stop and think, well, who is it up to? God, who is far more stable, far more good, (laughs) far more loving and wonderful and righteous than I am. So, of course, then I see the wisdom of this biblical teaching. So the second point then being conscience, that conscience might have sure and firm comfort. Three, that the distinction between law and gospel might be very clear. And that's just another way, because the law is going to say, do this or do that. And if it's mixed into the gospel, you're always going to have the doubt as to whether you did this or did that, or did it rightly, or did it genuinely, or did it enough, or whatever the case may be. It's the same principle, just viewed from a different angle. And four, that prayer might have boldness and access with confidence to God. And that's a point I've already touched on that all of this stuff is not mere dusty doctrines, but comes right down to your daily discourse with God, your conversation with him, your closeness to him, your walking through life with him. If you don't have these principles of justification right, if, you don't, if, if Satan has snatched away the Father's word such that you can't even return speech to your father, You've got to return to his word and comfort yourself by it that you might know that his ears are graciously open to you. You say, yes, yes, but this. Yes, yes, but that. Yes, but I've done such and such, or I haven't done the other. Return to his words and these exclusive particles that has never mattered. It didn't matter before, it doesn't matter now, and it won't matter in the future. His grace is not conditioned upon your failures or successes, or you in any way, shape, or form. So this has everything, because then not only prayer, but do you go to church on Sundays? Do you draw near to him in his house? Do you draw near to him in his word? Do you want to stand up for him and for his word when confronted, when there's going to be a cost? All of these things flow forth from a proper understanding of justification by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Okay, 167, 
But most men abuse this doctrine of free justification as though no good works whatever are to be done. Interesting, because this was written when? The 16th century. So this has been a perennial problem. Most men abuse this doctrine of free justification as though no good works whatever are to be done. And they receive the exclusive particles as license for all shamefulness. And frequently in this day and age, this masquerades under the language of freedom. Christ has set you free from the law, from the contents of the law. So what does that freedom look like then? A freedom to do whatever you want to do. If it's apart from the law, it's biblically anomia, which is translated as lawlessness. So you are free to be lawless, according to this theology. Now, that's scary because what do those say? To those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do X, Y, and Z in your name? What does he say? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anomia. So it, it is a big deal that one would depart from the law on account of the gospel or say that gospel freedom is freedom from the law. And that is what's being addressed here. So once more, but most men abuse this doctrine of free justification as though no good works whatever are to be done, and they receive the exclusive particles as license for all shamefulness. And here's the answer to that statement. The form of sound doctrine is not to be rejected or changed because of abuse. But the abuse can and ought to be guarded against in teaching with the greatest diligence on the example of the apostles, so that, namely, first it be stated clearly and on the basis of the fundamentals in what sense those exclusive particles are to be received, what, how, and why they exclude, as has already been stated. Second, that men might be constantly and diligently admonished to test themselves. Notice the active language and the, the test themselves it would This would be very similar to, if not synonymous with, that third category of repentance I was talking about, the testing, the examining, the repenting in an active sense. Repentance by way of conversion, 100% God's gift. Repentance by way of, more narrowly, by affecting Contrition, sorrow, terrors, etc. in us, 100% God. In the third category of examining oneself, testing oneself, there is a bit of a paradox. Because it's 100% God at work within you both to will and to do, but it is also you. Because that's the definition of being renewed. This kind of language turns up even someplace innocently like St. Paul, where he says, I worked harder than all the others, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So, both and. And here we see that both and, that men might constantly and diligently uh, admonished to test themselves, that men be constantly and diligently admonished to test themselves, whether they believe 
lest they deceive themselves with the wrong idea of faith. That is, by a feigned or dead faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. This is the test, where there is no contrition in the heart, but the intent remains to continue in sins. There certainly is no true faith. Likewise, faith that does not work by love, or which is not followed by good works, is surely dead. But faith justifies not because of good intent, or because it works by love, or brings forth good works, but only because it apprehends Christ with his merit in the promise of the gospel. If anyone nevertheless wants to abuse this doctrine, clearly and distinctly set forth and explained in this way, let him hear Paul, Romans 3, 8, his condemnation is just. But because of abuse, the true and necessary doctrine ought by no means to be neglected or mutilated. All right, and that's a fair enough place to stop to see if there's any reflections, questions, comments on those things that Chemnitz has just written. Of course, you can see there the idea of true faith and true repentance, even if not in that precise language being articulated. And to test oneself whether one has these things is important, unless you end up with false or hypocritical faith or repentance. Okay? then let's push on. I bet we can get one more done. Is justification to be attributed to faith only at the beginning of conversion? (laughs) In such a way that after the first conversion, we are justified no longer by faith alone, but by faith and works together, as by a second justification. And then justification consists not only in remission of sins, but in simultaneous reconciliation and sanctification or renewal. You could see how this would be an attempt to wed the medieval Lutheran and Roman perspectives on this question. Well, the Lutherans are right initially, and then the Roman Catholics are right after the fact. So see, everybody wins. (laughs) It just doesn't work that way, as you can already tell. Answer. The manner of justification is one and the same in the beginning, middle, and end. Namely, that we are justified by faith alone, by the pure grace of God, solely for the sake of Christ. And if you're in any kind of spiritual uh, struggle or affliction, that's worth highlighting, underlining, and revisiting later today and throughout the week. Because all our comfort consists in this. All our health consists in this. That we are justified by faith alone, by the pure grace of God, solely for the sake of Christ. And that that is true in the beginning, middle, and end. It never stops being true. I am always reminded of this when we, in the baptismal liturgy or elsewhere from Mark's gospel, read where Christ not only rebukes his disciples when they forbid the little children from coming, but he says, of such is the kingdom of God. In fact, unless you turn and become as such as these, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That is to say that in terms of justification, we started, we are right now, and we always will be his children that are justified and part of his family, not on the basis of any contingency, but simply by virtue of the fact that he has adopted us and claimed us as his own. 
So don't let Satan add in any conditional. Kenneth continues for Paul, Romans 4, citing a universal example of justification, does not cite Abraham when he was first converted, Genesis 12, but Genesis 15, when he had already rendered to God obedience and faith in various exercises for a number of years after his first call. And you can see also Hebrews 11, 8 and following. Midstream in good works, as it were, Paul puts the question, was Abraham's justification... Or in what does Abraham's justification before God consist? When he no longer only believes God, but is also eminent in many good works. Not only now reconciled, but also sanctified and renewed. Now, Paul answers plainly and clearly that Abraham is justified freely by faith alone and without works also in mid-course of good works. That is, he is pronounced righteous before God and receives to life eter- and received to life eternal, and that his righteousness and blessedness also then does not consist in renewal, but only in free reconciliation or the remission of sins. So you're going to want to go see Romans 4 for this argument from St. Paul. Kenneth continues in Romans 5.2, Paul beautifully connects the beginning, middle, and end of justification and describes it alone to faith. For he says, by faith in Christ, one, we have access to the grace of God. Two, we stand in that grace. Three, we glory in hope of the glory of God. That is, when we meet Christ in the resurrection of the dead, we do not want to be found having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3. So if you just pay attention to Chemnitz, what he's doing there, you see like a past, present, and future. He continues, Paul therefore does not admit renewal, sanctification, and good works of the reborn to the beginning, middle, or end of the process and act of justification. He does not mix it in with it but wants the grace of God alone, the merit of Christ alone, to rule there by faith alone. So, again, especially renewal. When you are given justifying faith, you are at the very same time, chronologically speaking, renewed. But these two things must be kept distinct, lest the merits of Christ be replaced with whether or not you're renewed or renewed enough. The object of faith slides from Christ to your renewal. We can't let that happen because the scriptures won't let that happen in the first place. But secondarily, we can see that if we do allow that to happen, doubt enters in because it's no longer contingent upon Christ alone, but in some way, shape, or form also contingent upon ourselves. All right, we're at the end of time. That's it for today. The Lord be with you.